Welcome to Reframe Your Life, a podcast for women who are on a spiritual journey and want to reclaim a vibrant and authentic faith. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Sandy Reynolds. You're listening to episode 84, and today I have a guest on that I've been following on Instagram for about four years. It was shortly after I came back from my first trip to Cambodia that I started to really look in earnest at the clothing purchases that I was making and wondering how I could make choices that were more sustainable, not just environmentally, but thinking about the workers in the garment factories and some of the other costs of the clothing industry and how my purchases were in some way supporting an industry that I didn't always feel aligned with in my heart and with my true values. Maybe you can relate to that. I realize it's a very complex subject and we are going to just look at it from one angle today but I want to introduce you to this guest. Her name is Leah Wise, and she is a writer and blogger based in Charlottesville, Virginia. Her expertise in the field of sustainable fashion and social justice have afforded her the opportunity to write for publications such as Elephant Journal and Mind Body Green, Relevant Magazine, and Christianity Today. She also has her own blog, StyleWiseBlog.com. She's a public speaker and a consultant working with faith-based organizations. Over the past five years, Leah has branded, has created successful influencer marketing campaigns with dozens of ethical brands on her blog platform. She's very accessible. I've reached out to her to talk to her about denim and where I could find a good ethical source of denim for a jean purchase I wanted to make and she was very thoughtful and considerate in her response and I was really thrilled when she agreed to have me interview her for reframe your life. I think you'll enjoy this episode and I know you're going to want to check out her website. We'll give you all the details at the end of the episode. But for now, let's get going. Leah, it's great to have you on Reframe Your Life. I've been looking forward to this interview. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. So welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So I've been following you for several years. I'm not sure. I wish that Instagram had that. You've been friends for Mm -hmm. this many years feature, but they don't. But it's been several years. I think it was, I went to Cambodia about three or four years ago. And when I was there, I visited uh, garment factories. And I think that was really a turning point for me. When I came back, I made a shift in how I looked at fashion and how I felt about the things that I purchased and I started looking for people and I found you and have really appreciated your insight and then I was surprised at some point I don't know why but I was surprised at some point to find out that you have a similar background to me in terms of your faith journey and you seem to be integrating a little bit more of that and we'll 
talk about that as well. But I wanted to start off with a question about your background and just ask you what your religious or spiritual formation was like as a child and how that impacted you as an adult. Sure. Um, so I grew up in American evangelical churches, um, so kind of non-liturgical, non-mainline, non-Catholic, um, more contemporary services. Um, so my my family were biblical literalists, which means they uh, see the Bible as word for word, literal word of God, um, and read almost every genre as history. Um, so that's been an interesting component of my life as an adult of faith to try to work through um, genre and what that could mean. Um, but so I became a Christian in the very traditional evangelical way by asking Jesus into my heart when I was six. And then I got baptized in a Nazarene church when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and church was really, really important to me. Um, maybe partially my oldest child tendencies, my people pleasing type A tendencies. It was a place where I felt like I I throve, I thrived. (laughs) And and I was really involved in the worship teams and choirs. And my dad in particular was always on the boards or um, the kind of the teams that helped with the organizational aspects of church life. And so we were at church a lot. We were often there for at least three services a week. And I was recently talking to my sister about this, that the physical space of church has always been comforting to me because I remember being a kid in Florida in church when no one else was there besides the pastor's kids Mm -hmm. and me and my sister. And we'd chase lizards through the hallways because there are always lizards inside in Florida. (laughs) Um, And we just play and, and it was like a second home for me. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely something that in my real life is extraordinarily integrated. Um, it's taken me a while to figure out how to integrate that into my online persona. Yeah, I, I think you're doing a good job. I don't know. Do you ever feel a little bit um, the attention around doing that? Like, how is that going to affect your online persona or your work? Or is that something you're pretty comfortable doing? Um, I'm getting more comfortable with it. Uh, I went through um, a pretty major spiritual crisis in college or a little bit after college. Um, I was attending a really conservative congregation where women weren't really allowed to participate in very many meaningful ways. Um, And I had been a religious studies major in college specifically because I wanted to, you know, offer a sort of intellectual approach to talking about faith. And I felt that despite that and having the knowledge and having the skills, I wasn't being appreciated at all. And it was really isolating to me. So with that in mind, I think, you know, it was it was pretty traumatic. And I know that my story isn't unusual. And in many ways, my story is probably more tame. Um, And I think it's just so easy when you identify yourself as a Christian without context for who you are in other ways you can be conflated with somebody who sides with spiritual abusers, who um, doesn't believe in sort of feminist or progressive ideals. And I don't want to create a false dichotomy 
dichotomy and say, well, there's like, I'm a good Christian and there are others who aren't, of course, like, I think it's really important for us to find the ways that we're um, alike and continue in community together. But that being said, I, especially in the face of current American politics, I'm a little bit wary of people thinking that I am a conservative evangelical on the internet. And I just don't want people to feel isolated or to shut down before we can continue a relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. I totally hear you with that. I, I try to find the same, hold the same space, I guess, in my work as well, because it can be a barrier to people receiving what you want to say if they put you in that box. You actually use the term former evangelical. Mm-hmm. So if you were to define what you are, in what would you say? Um, I've I've become pretty comfortable with with using the term term either progressive uh, Christian or Episcopalian. Um, I'm a member of the Episcopal Church now, uh, which broke off from the Ang- well. It's part of the Anglican community. It, it um, so it's a uh, in in some ways very similar to Catholicism, uh, but with some marked differences ideologically. Um, I. You know, it's interesting because while I don't identify as an evangelical in most ways in terms of the culture and the dynamics and some of the theological language, there is definitely a part of me, especially the um, the kind of really evangelistic part of me that I've heard people say, even reading my blog um, on non-religious topics, that they can tell that I grew up in evangelicalism because of the way that I talk about things that matter to me. Um, so, you know, and that's something I'm proud of. I think that evangelicals often have, um, a really straightforward, sincere way of talking about what matters to them. And they're not always so worried about, um, how that's going to be perceived. I think mainliners can feel, um, a bit shamed by feeling that they're not intellectual enough sometimes. So, so in, in that way, I'm a, I'm a post-evangelical who will always have part of that embedded in me. I like it. What is, what's been really helpful for you in that, in moving out of the evangelical worldview into where you are now? What were, what were some of the things that were supportive and helpful? Because I know I've been in that process. I feel like I will be in that process for the rest of my life because like you said, it's so embedded in me and it's, um, it's, there's just layers of it and it's been a long journey. So what, what are some of the things that have been helpful for you? The biggest thing is realizing that there's not one way to be a part of Christian community. Um, I find that at least in, from my view, evangelicalism has a very individualistic theology and, um, often because it's all about your personal relationship with God, your personal devotional time, um, your personal self-control, it becomes really isolating and it becomes really competitive. And I think that's where a lot of the shaming comes from. Uh, so what I've really benefited from, from in a liturgical tradition is the collectivism, maybe even in spite of itself, just because the church in a liturgical context is framed around 
collective prayer, um, collective liturgy. And for me, that's just been incredible because it's offered me the space to doubt and to question and to find myself while continuing to remain in community. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just seems to me to be the only way that we can really, you know, recover together. That's great. And did I read somewhere that you're in the process of becoming a priest? Yeah, so I'm in their very early stages. Um, It's called discernment, which is really just like a a year to a year and a half long process where you're supposed to um, kind of do your own private discernment and prayer, but also participate in community groups through your church parish and talk with your diocese about, um, you know, what it means to be a priest whether you feel it's a calling, whether you feel like it's in your skill set. So um, it's something I've been thinking about in one way or another for at least 10 years. And um, so it's been exciting, but also obviously I think in a way, in the same way that maybe going to therapy sessions would, it opens up a lot of vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. as well, but it's been good. Good. Well, I um, look forward to reading more about that journey as you progress through it. I hope you spend some time blogging or writing about it. And uh, I think that would be interesting for people. I feel like discernment has been a key part of my journey. I think it's great that you have to go through that time because I think one of the things that's important is learning to really listen to yourself and Mm -hmm. to kind of separate some of those voices so I wanted to move into talking about your work because I I think what you're doing is really significant and I also think that I have a ton of questions about (laughs) about fashion and style and uh, ethical shopping and and all of these things so you work in a thrift shop and um You've, how long have you been working in your thrift in the thrift shop you're in now? Are Almost you, you're four the manager, years. Sorry, you're yeah. the manager. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you really love fashion. I've picked that up. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I I know that you wrote a little bit about um, capsule wardrobes and your thought on it. And I I did interview someone who's really um, big in that area and tried that as well. But I I just thought it'd be kind of interesting to get your take on it because it is really limiting. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that we've talked on this podcast about that idea. So it'd be great to hear sort of another perspective on that as well. And kind of what you learned about capsule wardrobes. Sure. So I, I practice what I'm calling a flexible capsule wardrobe, which is really, it's not rigid um, or restrictive in the way that the, you know, I think when capsule wardrobes first came on the scene, maybe three or four years ago in full force, people had very specific quarterly wardrobes. They were stowing away everything they didn't wear during that season. Um, And it was just like very tightly curated. Um, that was really off-putting to me for a couple of reasons. One, like you said, I work at a thrift shop and, you know, thrift shopping, because you're buying on the secondhand market, it has this sort of green eco, um, component to it. 
And because you're not participating in demand for new product, I really don't see an ethical dilemma with making a purchase, um, making a little bit of an impulse purchase on like a really cool sweater if it costs you $4. So I was, I was unwilling in that regard to be really rigid because I think that fashion should be fun, especially if fashion is something you really like. Um, and sometimes the tight control really can just, uh, distract you, I guess, from, from the longer term goals of why you're even interested in the capsule in the first place, which is presumably, um, to just have an easier, simpler, more ethical wardrobe overall. Um, so my flexible capsule is really for the most part, especially recently, I learned a lot from, um, the wonder wardrobe course, which I reviewed for my blog and, what I learned most was that I really just need to be paying attention to color palettes and silhouettes that I really like. And that way I have a lot of flexibility overall, but I know that everything I have in my closet will more or less go together. Um, so I have really just my favorite colors and my favorite colors happen to go together. Now I'm sort of like a maximalist in some ways. <laughs> so my sense of what goes together, uh, my mom can attest, has always been like a little bit broader than most people's sense of what goes together. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it makes sense to pay attention to what you own, to make sure that the silhouettes that you have are things that you know you'll wear for a long time. But timelessness for you is different from timelessness for somebody else. Um, so it's more about knowing yourself well enough to make appropriate selections and then just not going overboard. So you don't need like 30 of the same shirt. You could probably deal with 10 to 15. Um, and that's, that's helped me a lot because it also mm -hmm. means that it's a judgment free zone for the most part for myself, because I was putting so much pressure on myself to be perfect that I was actually causing, um, and agitating other anxiety issues that I already have. So it's been important for me to be gentle. Mm, I like that. I like the freedom that is within the capsule wardrobe by adding that flexibility. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so with, uh, I wanted to talk about some of the, the words that you use on your website, some of the, the, uh, you know, ethical, fair trade, sustainable, um, the language around what you're doing, because I think it's very specific. And I think it's something that a lot of us are interested in, but we get confused a little bit by some of the terminology. And also, um, it can be paralyzing to shop when you start down this road. And you, you just don't know where to begin. So I just thought maybe you could tell us like some of the differences, like what's the difference between ethical and sustainable? I think you use the word uh, eco-conscious as well. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain some of those key uh, words that are part of having an intentional and thoughtful wardrobe? Sure. Um, so I, a few years ago, I actually went and looked up definitions of all of the terms and created my own kind of my list with definitions and links and terms um, just so that I can keep myself accountable for using the words in a consistent way. Um, the word ethical is 
really broad and really ambiguous and has a lot to do with personal, a personal sense of morality and what priorities you have. So there are a lot of ethical bloggers, there are a lot of ethical companies, but what that means can vary. And so I have started to use the word sustainable more frequently than ethical because I think it's a more precise term. Um, obviously, it's okay to have a broad term, but at some point that will not make any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my views, using the word sustainable or talking about sustainability is incorporating what I see as like the three main pillars of um, a successful and ethical business, which is using fair labor. Now, <laughs> there's another one there. So what what fair labor is, is it's pretty difficult to parse as well um, because things are produced in so many different countries with so many different standards of living. Um, But looking for at least a sense of employee well-being um, and then also looking to see if the company is trying in some way to produce items that have less of an environmental impact. And then the third piece, which people often forget about, but which I increasingly worry about is having a viable business model, having systems in place, um, treating your your U.S. bound or wherever your headquarters, treating those employees well as, um, as well. Um, because if you're doing something amazing with sustainable fabrics and you're treating your artisans really well, and then the whole thing goes bust in a year, then you know, what good have you done? <laughs> um, so that's a, that's a difficult one because you don't always know how viable a business is. But um, yeah, and then, I mean, I guess the smaller terms within that, when I talk about something being eco-friendly, I'm talking about something that's been produced with fibers that have less of an impact than traditional fibers, uh, particularly like polyester or rayon, which are synthetic and um, often oil-based. For me, I think it, it really comes down to figuring out how people balance those things. There's not a one size fits all for what would be the ideal company. And so just working through those things once one brand at a time is the best way to do it. And also knowing that if you can't, if you know you need something in particular, you should probably be, probably purchase the particular thing rather than trying to find an alternative, um, and driving yourself crazy looking for all of the credentials and then getting it and it not fitting or something. Right. Um, so there's a, the one component of sustainability increasingly for me is, does it fit? Is it high quality? Is it something that I'll really cherish? Yeah, I think I, I like that one brand at a time and, and just being specific about the particular piece that you're looking for. I find thrift shopping just time consuming and overwhelming it's sort of I try to go down that path and I think I don't have time I try not to buy a lot and so if I do need something the thought of going to like 15 thrift shops spread out all over the city Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the hopes that I can find that one item is a huge deterrent. So I don't know if you have any tricks or any suggestions because I do think that is one of the things that gets in the way of thrifting for a lot of people is we just don't want to spend a lot of time and it's just more convenient to either order something online or just 
walk into a mall and make a purchase and get out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely understand that. For me, I'm I'm pretty fortunate in that I'm at the thrift shop four or five days a week. And if I'm looking for something, it'll turn up. Sometimes it takes a year, but you know, sometimes I don't really need it. So that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my number one tip, if you really are interested in thrift shopping is going for fabric and color before you go for anything else. So I'm very much into the tangible component. Um, if, if you were to watch me walk around a thrift shop, I look for colors I like first and I immediately touch the fabric. And then if I like the feel of the fabric, I look inside and see what it's made of. And if it's made out of 100% cotton or um, silk or rayon or cashmere or a high, another high quality fiber, and especially if I can also tell that the brand normally makes high quality products, um, that's how I do my initial narrowing down. It's a lot easier than just going to your size and looking through every single thing. And it means that you're not going to get distracted by things that aren't really what you wanted. Um, you know, my, my mom really didn't like to thrift shop, uh, for quite a while because she didn't think that she'd be able to find things that fit her. And I think what opened it up for her was we would go together and we would search together. And so it does help to have a friend who knows your taste as well and go with them. Mm, Good advice. I was wondering how you think about clothing and fashion with the lens of spirituality or faith, like where, how you see those things meshing or coming together, like aside from the purchases and the choices that you make, how, is there any other connection there for you that you've thought about? I mean, I've, I have thought about it in some ways, but I don't know that I've always put them to words. Um, I think for me, I've noticed in my own life that being dressed in a way that feels like an extension of my identity makes me a lot more comfortable in a room and makes me a lot more comfortable, especially if I'm meeting new people. I feel like I'm projecting what I want to project in the world through what I'm wearing. And I think, you know, God created beauty, the the church for, you know, in so many ways celebrates beauty through its structures, through its liturgy, through its music. And I think we often neglect the visual component of spiritual life. And so for me, dressing in a way that that feels true to myself. So I'm, I'm sure that there are ways we could, we could talk about clothing as um, disguising or leading us away from who we are or who we're, um, what purpose we're trying to live into. But, but dressing in a way that feels like me makes me be able to approach people and feel comfortable enough in my own skin to welcome others. And so I think that we shouldn't undervalue personal style as long as we don't, you know, I idolize it in some way Um, because it's who we are and we're people who wear clothes because our society dictates and the weather might dictate that we wear clothes. So it's not as if we can get away from it. So it seems to me that we really should celebrate. Yeah, I think uh, Lauren Winner talks about in one of her books about clothing, like God is clothing. I know you've read. Yeah, she um, in Wearing God, that's, that's a part of that book. Yeah, yeah, I found that really insightful. I'll look, I'll put a link to that book 
in the show notes for this, but I remember reading that and thinking that was kind of a cool way to think about God that I had never thought about. So it's always about balance, right? It's always about trying to find that balance between personal expression and like you said, not hiding, but um, also just enjoying beauty and Mm -hmm. it's a creative expression. So But with that balance, uh, I think in your last blog post that I read, there's, there was a, another area of balance, I think that can be a struggle when you start really looking at how to move into, you use the term conscious consumerism, Mm -hmm. and becoming more aware of the choices that you're making, and it, it can become kind of a heavy thing for us if we really want to commit to making the best choices that we can. Can you mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about that blog post? Because I, I, I thought it was really insightful. Thank you. I'm glad that I'm glad that people read it. It was a bit of a stream of consciousness piece. Um, I was really struggling with Anthony Bourdain's death and it for some reason brought up so many other issues. And um Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this actually plays, at least for me personally, back into my evangelical upbringing in some ways. This idea that we have to personally change the world, and that means that we have to control every aspect of our lives precisely. We have to know all of the answers. We have to, um, especially when you're talking about blogging or being an influencer on the internet, a lot of the the language is around authenticity, but to brand yourself well, a lot of times authenticity itself or the language of authenticity is disguising real authenticity. And so what becomes difficult is you feel further and further isolated from your um, your real life community and the online community because you're trying so hard to prove that you're good enough. And you're using language that cloaks it as if you're living your best life or you're, you know, this, this image of a sort of like homesteading, setting flowy artist or something and that everything is great. But um, I don't know if I'm explaining it very well, but I think the gist of it is that it is really easy to think that you're the only one who can change anything and to buy into this lie that if you don't perfect yourself, you have, you have like ruined your potential to change the world. Mm -hmm. And in a way that becomes a mark of pride. So for me, I, I was feeling myself having this tendency to make myself publicly sad. I was publicly sad, but to make myself, uh, to dramatize it in some way, because the only way that I could prove that I was really trying and I was really an activist is if I looked really upset all the time. And that in turn made me even more upset and it made me ineffective because I was closing in on myself. And so it was really, the, the post was a, a real attempt to preach to myself that like, you cannot do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who changed the world, at least in my own life, are the people who radiate joy. And those are the people I want to be around. And I, I don't think we should guilt people into being joyous when they aren't. But um, on a personal level, I think I can do better to strive for that joy. 
I think that was very well put. I think you um, have uh, explained that very clearly. And I would encourage my listeners to go back and read that blog post because I, I so resonated with it and that tendency to just get so intense about the things you're focusing on that you, you know, it's, you don't, you need to lighten up a little bit. Well, and it may have been a stream of consciousness for you, but I, I actually read it and thought, I wonder how long she took to write this because it <laughs> seems so well thought through. <laughs> um, the secret is I wrote it. It probably took me an hour, but I wrote it straight through um, while I was at work. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? I think this is a good segue into your ebook because talking, I didn't plan this, but talking about writing and in your work as a, as an ethical lifestyle blogger, you've written an ebook for other people to help them if they want to explore that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure there are people who are, have other areas of interest that they'd like to explore and it might be helpful for them. Sure. Um, so yeah, my ebook is quite niche. It's really intended for mostly up and coming, but even people who are, are have been blogging for as long as I have um, to work through some of the strategic elements of having an ethical lifestyle blog. I think um, when you're claiming an ethical premise, it requires you to think through some of the other best practices of blogging and consider whether or not they're really best. <laughs> um, you know, I think as in any business, but maybe particularly when you're a freelancer or an entrepreneur, it's really easy to fall prey to, um, a kind of dangerous competition or a dog eat dog kind of mentality where you're trying to undercut other people for your own success. And I don't, I don't think that's really happening broadly in ethical blogging world at all, but I think it's something that we have to think about. Um, so I wanted to create something that both addressed that issue, but also just provided really practical resources for people looking to work with ethically minded brands and nonprofits and social enterprises and who are looking to do marketing that uh, fits within this, this do good kind of premise. Um, yeah. So it's, it's actually been fairly successful in terms of sales and I, it was a great exercise for me to write it all down and understand my own strategy a little bit better. And so I'm hoping that it will continue to be a good resource for people. That's great. And along with that, you've been either part of, or you started a community of ethical lifestyle bloggers. Is that right? I, yeah. So I didn't start it. I joined ethical writers uh, we were Ethical Writers Coalition, but now we're Ethical Writers and Creatives uh, to make it a little bit broader. I joined, um, it was probably almost three years ago, if not longer. So I've been in the group for quite a long time, and it's really been phenomenal for me. It's it's helped me gain a lot of confidence in myself as a freelance writer and as a blogger. And you know, there's always going to be disagreement, but I think through the community that we've built, we have all learned how to adapt to disagreement and how to be considerate of one another. And we share a lot of resources with one another as well and um, work through issues we're having. And it's just been a great support network. That's great. And so is that by invitation? Is that how people become a part of that? 
Um, I think they occasionally do um, invite people personally, uh, but you can actually go to ethicalwriters.co and apply if you're an influencer. Okay, that's great. Well, I this has been fascinating, and I feel like we could get a lot deeper into some of these topics. There's a couple things that I'd like to do just to wrap up. One of them is I'd like you to just tell the listeners how they can find you, and then I just have something I'd like to say at the end there. Sure. Uh, so my blog is stylewise-blog.com, and you can find me on any other social media platform uh, with Stylewise Blog. So it's facebook.com slash stylewiseblog, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Um, I'm not on YouTube because video freaks me out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would love to connect and um, know what you're thinking. And if there was, aside from your blog and your work, is, is there a um, book or something that you would recommend for people who are interested in learning more about sustainable fashion and the, the industry and the choices that they're making? Um, I would actually recommend two documentaries. I would recommend The True Cost and Poverty, Inc., I think watching them in tandem is a really good idea because the true cost will give you a um, broad sense of the injustices in the manufacturing industry. And Poverty Inc. will tell you how um, the U.S. in particular has profited off of poverty social enterprise models. And so it, it'll overwhelm you, but it will give you a really broad picture of what's happening in the industry. And then for actual encouragement, I would suggest... Um, definitely go to the Ethical Writers website and click through so you can check out all of those blogs and just find the ones that speak to you the most. That's great. So I was thinking today, one of the ways that I like to end the podcast is by uh, saying a blessing for the person that I interview. And so I really like John O'Donohue. I don't know if you know his work at all, but... I, I was looking through it today and thinking about this interview and what would be a good blessing. And so I chose this one. And I, I actually think that as we were talking, this came up a few times. So let me just say this for you and for your work and for anyone who's listening who is endeavoring to live with the same kind of um, compassion and authenticity and integrity in their in their lives and in in specifically in the clothes and the um, clothing purchases that they make so this is a blessing for equilibrium like the joy of the sea coming home to shore may the relief of laughter rinse through your soul as the wind loves to call things to dance May your gravity be lightened by grace. Like the dignity of moonlight restoring the earth, may your thoughts incline with reverence and respect. As water takes whatever shape it is in, so free may you be about who you become. As silence smiles on the other side of what's said, may your sense of irony bring perspective. As time remains free of all that it frames, may your mind stay clear of all it names.
May your prayer of listening deepen enough to hear in the depths the laughter of God. So Leah, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated getting to know you a little bit and having this opportunity to hear more about your work and your faith and how you're putting those two things together in your life as you um, do this really important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for your encouragement and for having me and also for the beautiful blessing. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or go to the iTunes store and leave me a review. I would also invite you to check out my website, sandyreynolds.com, for more information how you can become aligned spiritually. I have a program I'll be launching in October, and if you're looking for a community to help you on your spiritual journey, you'll love what's coming. <music>